So in February, uh, I was at a conference in Vegas, and it was an international work conference. And we literally had everybody from our global team there, China, Italy, blah, blah, blah. Um, on Friday, I'm talking to my friend who I was hanging around with at the conference all the time. And she's like, I've got the flu. And I'm like, oh. So Saturday morning, I wake up and I am dead. I am like, I can't get out of bed for three days. Like in a way that like, I don't think I've ever been sick. A week and a half later, it's gone. Don't think anything of it. I think I had the flu because, you know, like I had no uh, context with which to think about it otherwise. This is Food at a Radio is all dressed up and has no place to go. When I started my first personal food site, I named it Sky Full of Bacon because I figured I needed a way to differentiate myself from other food writers named Michael or Mike, including my guest this time, Michael Nagrant who by then had already launched his site, Hungry Mag, and wrote for Time Out Chicago and The Reader, did podcasts for Chicago Magazine, and would go on to review for The Sun-Times and Red Eye, among other credits. Lately, he's been focused on his day job, but with the lockdown, he sprang into action, launching a newsletter called Love in the Time of Coronavirus, which not only tells Chicago food stories, it raises money for restaurants. Earlier this week, we spoke about that, the restaurant scene, being dads of boys, and the coronavirus, which he still doesn't know if he had or not. But first, remember to subscribe to Fooditor Radio at Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, and subscribe to Fooditor's Buzz List for food news every week. Now, here goes. How old is your son? Well, I got two, nine and thirteen. I know how it is with the, you know you're you always talk about the things the older ones doing because they're what what's new to you, and the younger one it's kind of oh you're doing that now too that's good maybe your brother can supervise it but well the the thirteen year old doesn't talk to us anymore so oh, okay. basically we just focus on the nine year old at this point the thirteen year old is like already twenty two so yeah. it's like, <laughs> it's like a, he's like playing Call of Duty in his room for till like four in the morning now that he can. And sleeping until noon, which, you know, I mean, he reminds me of myself, so I can't really get mad at him. Right. But, but um, you know, obviously that is the other change, right? Like the homeschooling um, or whatever it is. I mean, that's one of those things where um, I'm starting to wonder about the leadership of CPS. Not that I shouldn't, I haven't been wondering about them for a long time. But, um, you know, it's, we know this thing's going to go longer than people think it is. Um, it might not go as long as some people think it is, but the reality of it is um, it feels like, and I and I, I don't know if this is just CPS, this is probably a lot of things, but it feels like people are just waiting and waiting and waiting and, you know, kicking the can down the road because they can, as opposed to just saying, listen, whether we go back X or we don't, um, here's what we're going to do go forward and here's the contingency plan and the fact that we're not hearing any of that, you know, it's a little bothersome, right? I mean, I'm in the position where my 13-year-old, obviously, he's in seventh grade, so this is the selective enrollment year. And um, while, you know, he's actually, he actually was doing really well with grades. So I'm not, like, I'm not holding my breath that we would get in. But the flip side of it is it's a really critical year for these seventh graders. So it's like, 
what are they going to do about grades for the rest of the term or whatever? And uh, they did cancel the map test. So, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, mine went to Lincoln Park High School, which imploded this year. So uh, I'm not uh, too convinced <laughs> about CPS having a clue about anything. But the younger one who's still in it, the older one's in college now, um, the younger one got his, you know, they sent out some form of what the rest of the school year is supposed to be like and what you're supposed to do each day. Although it's not clear, you know, are you actually taking enrollment uh, when you have to be on Zoom at certain hours or do you just have to do the work? Uh, I think they're going to have real trouble with making everyone actually show up at certain times. And they should have trouble with it because it should be up to families to sort of decide when, you know, how how stuff gets done, assignments get done. I mean, we're we're doing a lot of cooking. He has a million projects out in the garage. I don't even know how many bikes he owns that are all in pieces at this point. Uh so, you know, he doesn't necessarily need to sit in his class uh, precisely at 10.30, to my mind. Especially since a bunch of the teachers were out his last week anyway, and they were just sitting in there watching movies. They were watching Seven in his high sc- in one of his high school classes the week before he got out, which I'm sure is, yeah. you know, is, what a great choice for for high schoolers for their learning. I mean, you mentioned that. I'm kind of excited by that. <laughs> I actually have the movie poster in my office. It's, uh, I, I mean, obviously, like many people, I'm a Fincher fan. But, um, yeah, I mean, I've built my whole life around uh, trying to construct a life outside of the norm, right? Right. Um, because reality is, I think people know this, and I think this is why business has started to go in that direction, is that, like, we all have different schedules and we all have different circadian rhythms and we all have different needs. And, um, you know, it's, it's better if we're able to get the task done when on our terms, um, and the performance is going to be a lot higher than if you just try to put everybody in a box. And I think even my kids, actually, what I've seen is that I feel like they're actually thriving. Um, you know, they're doing the homework and they're enjoying it and they're getting it done when they're ready to get it done. Um, but they're doing it better, um, and they seem to be happier. Um, so, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know if there's like Montessori for high school, but maybe right. that's like <laughs> a thing that like I should look into, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the younger one who's the gearhead, like I said, he, he's all about the bikes in the garage and they're building, a a, um, composter for me and stuff like that. The older one is reading the Brothers Karamazov because he's the culture vulture. And, and, you know, when he was like 14, he asked me, what's the greatest book of all time? And I just sort of glibly said, I don't know, Brothers Karamazov or something. So it's kind of been his project to read that ever since. And he made one attempt and didn't finish it. But this is the second one. And he's, he's steaming through it. So good for him. When he's done, you can give him infinite jest. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, he he was overseas. He went to Northern Ireland for study abroad, and I bought him uh, Cryptonomicon, which is at least heading in that direction. And he left it home because he already had his books picked out, including the Brothers Karamazov. But I'll say the thing that was like mind blowing to me is um, my so. I think last Christmas we got the iPad for the nine-year-old and, and the, uh, 
I got him one with the keyboard, not the pro, but it comes with the keyboard, like with the case and it's a Bluetooth thing. And, uh, the, the keyboard immediately got thrown to the side like a year ago and was never used. Right. And then he found it this week and he like sat down at the kitchen table, hooked it up. And he just, he was like hunched over the keyboard typing and he looked like Hemingway or something at the typewriter. <laughs> and I'm like, what's going on here? And, um, Ever since he was a little kid, I had told them a story, uh, like a bedtime story, and it was just like different variations on the theme uh, every night, even though it was like the same basic structure, but then I would change the story. And um, so he literally spent an hour and wrote like a chapter, like based on that. And like it was, I mean, he's nine, but like it was legitimately good. It had like discursive asides. It was ironic. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I, he's clearly mine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it was also like mind blowing. I like, I was like, I did not see that coming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the best when they can, when they can run autonomously and it's not just, uh, you know, the programming you put in, but suddenly. Speaking of being productive at keyboards, you're awfully productive <laughs> of late. Um, you seem to me to be drifting a little out of the reviewing thing, but this crisis has given you new energy to go on or something like that. I don't know. Is that how you see it? I mean, uh, I mean, I think people, uh, think I just want to sit here and like stab chefs, um, based on my previous output. Um, so, but you know, obviously this is not a time to be reviewing. Um, you know, I was, I was thinking about it, I guess. When I started, um, I started with like Hungry Magazine and I started doing these long form podcasts and I started doing chef profiles and I didn't start with the idea of being a reviewer in mind. And the thing that I was most passionate about was telling those stories for so many reasons. You know, I kind of eventually just narrowed into the the review thing, but partially and, and as you know, as somebody who tells incredible uh, stories and long form stories about Jeff's and has been doing as long as anyone. Um, it takes effort um, and it takes time. And um, those things are in short supply when, you know, as you know, we're in a media landscape where uh, the pay continues to uh, get lower. Um, the opportunities dry up. And even if you're creating it for yourself, it's quite a slog to raise money to be able to support that endeavor um, I have a real job. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a reasonable job. It's a job that allows me to, um, still write reviews and do the uh, occasional thing. But obviously this crisis, um, has opened up a lot more time than I had before because part of my job typically is traveling on site and demoing uh, highly technical software for people. Um, obviously not a lot of flights going on right now. Um, I am doing stuff remotely. Um, but that being said, like given the time, you know, it's like, well, how would I spend it? And, you know, I think that's probably great advice for everybody right now, assuming you can get your basic needs met. You know, if you're the best thing you could do is, is kind of pursue that thing that you always want to do and kind of get out of your own like headspace. And that's what this is for me. Um, I mean, you know, I, I can't say that, uh, watching you over the last couple of years is, has not, uh, it's been very inspirational and it's been like sort of a reminder of 
what I think is really most important around food. I do, I, I, I do believe critical reviewing is still important, especially given the fact that um, it's dwindling in this town. Um, but again, this isn't a time to do that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, I guess in some ways I'm getting back in my passion. The other thing, of course, is that because I am lucky enough to have a job that pays the bills, obviously I want to have restaurants to return to, um, you know, whatever little bit I can do, um, to, you know, if people are willing to pay for this or whatever, as of today, I just checked before we got on the phone call, raised 1400 bucks. So, um, you know, and I've get, I've gotten rid of like 800 of it. I get paid, uh, I think on Friday, so I'll send out a whole bunch more and hopefully I can just keep this going. So, well, let's talk about first, uh, what the newsletter is. What was your idea when you started it? I, I mean, I think the like, sort of like first post was just the idea of me just trying to make sense. I didn't, I don't even know if I was going to go food as much as I was just trying to make sense within the context of my worldview of what was going on. And I kind of had to write and I didn't feel like my website, which is generally, even though it's my name or whatever, it is mostly focused on the food writing and that's what people expect. Um, you know, so I think I wrote that first kind of essay and I'm still not entirely convinced it will stay and remain completely about food. Um, but, uh, that, that was the initial idea. And then, you know, now I think it's just like, okay, uh, let's just start telling these stories. Let's start interviewing chefs. Let's start, you know, and part of it is also sort of like, it's generally insider baseball to talk about the business and talk about like how difficult it is to uh, survive in the hospitality industry, even in great times. But I think that there's actually a little bit more of an appetite for that now because people it can relate respect it with respect to their own pain and their own lives and their own careers right now as things are strained um, because of the virus and all that. So um, in some ways, it's I think it's also a way to highlight you know, cash flow, margins, um, healthcare issues, uh, how these chefs are struggling to keep their businesses afloat, how these chefs don't magically appear with a restaurant, how, you know, I wrote the profile today on Pauly G, uh, Derek Tung, and, um, you know, it's remarkable to me that, you know, some people just see a pizza place with a wood-fired oven, uh, but when you dig into it, this is like a story that's like, realistically, you know, I joke about it starts 30 years ago when he's a kid, but it, it truly is at least a seven or eight year journey to where he is now. Um, and, you know, this is a guy who went to medical school for a while, and this is a guy who's got a master in health administration. And he's honestly using almost every bit of that uh, intelligence to make this thing happen. Um, you know, th this is not just about like putting out good food and hoping for the best. Um, so I think, you know, being able to tell those stories so that people, when they do go back to the real restaurant world, you know, maybe they're not going to cry about the $5 bread basket or whatever it is. Um, you know, maybe they'll appreciate uh, what they have more. So I think that's part of it as well. The other thing I think about a lot too is like the restaurant industry has a very low barrier to entry. Like you have to find money and you have to pass the sanitation course and you have to apply for a business license I mean, I know I'm simplifying it, but realistically, that's it. So it's not like you had to go to the university of, you know, whatever. You don't have to go to Kendall even. You don't have to go to CIA. Um, you, you you open up. And so what happens is you have a lot of people who just come into this industry without business experience, without, um, you know, a desire to, 
put out a differentiated product. Um, they come in with a dream and not much else. And sometimes that dream's not even particularly big. And uh, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's just a fact. And so what happens is, you know, for the people who are doing it right, it still becomes very difficult because you're competing against people who don't understand that they have to be differentiated. You're competing against people who are willing to take no margin or take a loss for similar things to what you're doing. And it's very different, difficult for the public to differentiate uh, on the surface between this is wood-fired pizza with DOC ingredients from Italy versus like this is like cardboard uh, you know, stuff from, you know, one of the big broadline food suppliers um, that no one really cares about. And so competing against that, it makes it really tough. It's, it's an artificial market in many cases in terms of, um, you know, people not being willing to make money or holding prices in sort of a semi-collusional way, even though they're not actually collusion, colluding. Um, it, it's, 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 it, it is now, uh, uh, where people, I, I think people need to really reflect on what they're doing and say, hey, do I need to be smarter about my business? Do I need to be taking care of my employees? What can, How can I differentiate the business? Do I need to raise prices? Um, I know those are things that consumers don't want to hear, um, but the rea reality is um, we're going to lose a lot of restaurants during this pandemic, not only because of the pandemic, but because consumer behaviors were not willing to accept uh, the things that they needed to, to to ensure that this kind of thing would survive, you know, past even like two weeks, whether it was a pandemic or not. Um, people are literally uh, making money next week to pay for this week in this industry. Yeah. No, I, I always think of it as, as like with with hot dogs back in the day. I mean, there was one hot dog, hot dog stand in Chicago that had a line wrapped around the building at 1215 every day. And yet nobody copied what he was doing for the longest time. Eventually the, there was that guy up in Glenview or something. And then there was yeah. Franken dogs, but that was basically like two or three over the decade that he was open. And meanwhile, there's a million people doing, you know, <clears throat> red hots and, and frozen fries all over the city and wondering why they're not getting, traffic like he's getting or worse yet not wondering about it at all they don't even know they're just they're just uh plugging away at the business um which of course makes it totally different from freelance writing about food which isn't a race to the bottom and you know <laughs> has no no barrier to entry whatsoever either <laughs> that, that's absolutely true um and i mean that's the thing is like I don't know that my newsletters like particularly differentiated from what I was doing before before I was a reviewer or even from the kind of things that you're doing or you know but the other flip side of it is uh I think right now you and I are the only people doing it <laughs> you know like that it's it I mean there's a couple who put out things here and there like Maggie Hennessy will do some interesting things and it's like but you know one of the th comments I've gotten from chefs uh lately uh just via like text or email or social media is, Hey, Oh my God, it's great to see a narrative. Um, it's great to see something that's a little bit more than just, you know, like a puff piece and things like that. And again, that wasn't my intention in so much as that this is just how I try to do stuff. Um, but it also, I mean, again, it's the thing about like, you know, if you're, listen, I think uh, if you're going to do what Nick Kindlesperger does, that's amazing, right? Like 
you go to like 50 places, truly find the quote unquote best. Don't just declare it after eating like three things. Um, but how many of those do we need? You know, um, the Tribune should have a writer who focuses on long form narratives. It is the differentiating factor in this marketplace where everybody else is, again, putting out listicles and putting out these quick hits and things like that. Um, it's obviously, you know, I, I don't know how much you want to get into this or if it's, it's a diversion, but obviously I've been really, really tough on Phil Vitell. Um, and, and I, and I think that, listen, you know what, this is the paper of record in the city, really, frankly, the only one now with a food critic. And, you know, I, I'm fine with Phil coming out and saying, look, it's me. Everybody knows that Phil was the worst kept secret in Chicago, um, in terms of his face. Right. Uh, but the flip side of it is. I still don't think that the the critic at the paper of record um, needs to be going to media dinners and doing tequila shots with chefs and then writing about it. Because I think that, you know, I know, and I've said this before again, too, like if you um, if when I call people to fact check, even if I try mightily subconsciously, that discussion that I have with the chef over a fact check can I find can sometimes creep into my writing. Maybe it makes something a little bit more positive where, and it's not that I want to be negative, but I want to try to maintain as much objectivity as possible. So when you're on Instagram and I can pull up five examples of Phil with his arm around a chef taking a grinning toothy selfie. I mean, I can only imagine that all objectivity has gone out the window. And then it's like, well, what's, what's the service that you're providing now? You know, I don't know that when I read you that when you like something, it's actually truly good. Um, and I certainly have no baseline for what you think is bad. So it, it just it seems a little bit worthless to me. And I'm not saying that Phil shouldn't be able to take a victory lap. He absolutely should. He's been doing this for 30 or 40 years. He's done good work in the past. Um, but the flip side of it is, you know what? Retire or shift to features and take the victory lap. Uh, don't don't continue to like eat your cake, have your cake and eat it too. Well, I think that's really the paper has no idea what they want to do next because they don't know if they're going to be here. They don't know if Alden Capital is going to have, uh, you know, stripped them like piranha stripping a carcass. Um, they ought to be moving. Yeah, I mean, like you say, Vitell ought to be doing features now, and they ought to be figuring out who their reviewer or reviewers are and what their beats are and all that stuff. And it's like they just can't seem to move on that. Um, I'm not convinced that they're the paper of record because I'm not convinced that that's a concept that means anything anymore. I feel like it's, you know, firmly in the newspaper world of 1974. And... To me, there's there's no one center of the media landscape. I mean, I have a, a small but dedicated group of people who who follow me and what I do, and I'm the I'm the paper of record for those people. Not a lot of them, but some. And I think that that sort of scatters around. The other thing is just that a lot of people have dropped out of that idea entirely. You used to follow the Tribune or Pat Bruno and the Sun-Times or whatever, because you wanted to know what they thought every week. And I feel like with both too much media and not enough serious media, I don't know that people do that anymore. Yeah, no, that's actually a fundamentally uh, really good point. And that's actually something I've learned by doing this thing, right? Um, I believe, even though I've convinced myself for so many years that it's not true, 
that people actually do want to pay for good content. And so I've sat there and I put it out for free forever for the last few years. Um, and then all of a sudden I made the shift and, you know, maybe it's just because it's for charity and that's okay too. Um, but there has been an incredible appetite for people willing to pay, even if it's just the five bucks a month to read this stuff. And I do think in some fundamental way that um, what this is telling me is that like, you just have to kind of go and do it. Um, and you also, of course, have to put out good content. But if you're doing it, there's actually, you know, it, I, I think the old model, right, was like, yeah, I would read, uh, I don't know, uh, I obviously, I wasn't the primary uh, consumer for, uh, for Vogue magazine, right? <laughs> However, I love Jeffrey Steingarten, who was the food critic and or the food writer. And so I would read or pick up Vogue whenever Jeffrey was in there. Um, but the fact that I was paying whatever it was I was paying for an issue of Vogue at the airport and then, you know, maybe flipping through like the 4,000 Givenchy ads or whatever that I didn't really care about seemed sort of a waste to me. And now, like, w if, if Jeffrey Steingarten were writing in this world, I could just pay my five bucks a month to Jeffrey Steingarten and get all of the content that I want specifically from him. So, I, I mean, I think you're right. I think that that's where we're going. And, you know, I think that's where we've been trying to go for a long time. I think the biggest problem, of course, was um, how do you get people to pay for something in an easy and passive way to do it? Um, and now that you have credit card processing that's on micro level, um, it's not as difficult as it once was. I think the biggest thing is the psychological hurdle of even pushing towards that because for so long, those things didn't exist. So I, I would say that that's one thing that I have learned from doing this is that you know, people are willing to invest in your content if, if, if they believe in you and they're interested in what you have to say. They don't care if you're part of the Sun-Times or the Tribune or Food and Wine or whatever it is. No, I kind of feel like the big media is the equivalent of the Sears catalog, you know, and I spent a long time in advertising watching Sears decline as an important American institution. Uh, for some reason, the ad agencies always wanted to pitch it when you're like, you know, go pitch Coles. They're the future and Sears is the past. Um, but anyway, they, you know, it was that all in one place mattered a great deal when you were out on a farm in North Dakota and the Sears catalog was your lifeline to things in the world. Mattered quite a bit less later on when Sears was a store in the mall and the whole mall served the function that Sears once served and Sears was just one piece of it. And that's how I feel about a great big newspaper is there are parts of it that I care about and there are parts I very much don't care about. And now that we have the ability to get, you know, to get exactly the piece we want to read the movie reviews and other movie reviews and read the food reviews and other food reviews and not read other parts of it. I mean, just the idea of that much paper coming into my house is kind of appalling. Yeah. I, well, it's funny because I, you know, forever I kind of held out on the, even the digital subscription because I'm like, honestly, even if they're charging me a dollar a week or whatever it is, I'm not entirely sure the content's worth it. Um, that's kind of where I had gotten to. And, um, you know, I, I do subscribe now. Um, but the flip side is I would say that I look at like every third um, day at the paper. And obviously, I look at Wednesday because, again, I'm looking at the food section. Um, but, you know, it's not like even though it's showing up in my inbox and, you know, that's what's been really cool here, too. Right. Is the 
what I'm doing now is, uh, I mean, it's fundamentally no different than blogging in like 2003. Um, but the flip side of it is the, the really ingenious twist, which is not really that amazing at all, is that it's delivered straight to your inbox. So it's so interesting to me that the passive act of going to a website to click on a, li- or click on a link on Twitter to get to a website is really, really difficult for people. However, if you deliver that same article to their inbox, there's a much higher chance that they're going to read it and they might even share it, which is, for example, when I, uh, I have, uh, like almost 700 subscriptions now, not paid. Um, the paid subscriptions are something like a hundred, but the, um, the other, but right now I'm also putting out all the content for free. I'm not paywalling it. I will paywall off some of it. Um, but I'm seeing uh, on average uh, a roughly like a 65% open rate uh, by like 9 a.m. Um, some of my uh, pieces have opened at like 80% by the end of the day. So, you know, I, I, that's not a rate that the major newspapers are probably seeing. Uh, it's certainly not seeing it for me. Although, you know, it's funny. It's like the old world still applies, right? Like this morning I got an email from somebody and they like listed like three things they want me to do. But did they pay for the subscription? No, they didn't. So it's like the most vocal people are the people who aren't actually paying for the content, which, you know, that, that's never going to change, I suppose. Right now, it's I'm having fun. Um, you know, just getting to talk to people again, too, as opposed to like being at arm's length. I mean, that's the interesting thing about this. I don't know if I'm going to go back to reviewing because now I'm in a position where I'm like forging these relationships and like, um, you know, in some cases, like, I'm donating money to these restaurants. Like, how, can, can I write about them? I don't know if I can. Um, so who knows what we, when we get out of that, but. I mean, that's what I, I went through. It's like, I'm, I don't want to write review reviews. I don't want to write long reviews because I can't stand the format, but th- it's clear from who I write about and who I talk about what I think about those is restaurant experiences. I mean, yeah. you know, you can't read something I read about, say, Elena Reagan and not think, hmm, this Elizabeth sounds interesting. I should check that out or whatever. So to me, it was always about talking about what restaurants are important and worth your time and money in the context of what they're doing, not in the context of me as the passive recipient of that experience. Yeah, uh, which is what too often I find conventional reviewing to be. Not yours, because yours is its own bizarre thing. But uh, it's fucked up. Yeah, that the, resta- it. that the, rest- <laughs> the restaurant doesn't enter into until about twenty minutes into it. But uh, yeah, it is just a vehicle. To be honest, for telling stories, right? Like um, I sometimes think about, like, what if I just threw food away and just did other stuff? Right. Um, <laughs> Everybody. I mean, I- you keep waiting for the I, restaurant I guess, to appear, and it's it it just keeps being uh, references to '80s bands. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love food, so it's hard. You know, you like you put them together, but um, you know, who knows? But um, you know, some people like it, some people don't, and that's just that's the prerogative we both have, right? right. Like you, you know, I cover what's interesting. If you want to pay me now, fine. If you don't want right. to, who cares? We'll work it out. Um, yeah, exactly. You know. It's like, you know, and, and how much did you pay for the reviews on the Michael, uh, Michael Exactly. Quit, quit 100%. your bitching. <laughs> you know, 100%. now you're, yeah, now you're, t- you're actually taking money, but at least it's, but you're not really taking it. So, 
Right. Well, yeah, I, I mean, that's it's similar to why I started doing the Food Order 99. I mean, I just started thinking everybody's got their list out there of what the best are. I should put mine up. And then I thought, well, why should I put it up for free? And it just was like an opportunity to play with how Amazon was doing direct publishing really easily. And as long as I sort of meet their formatting standards, I can do whatever I want. And that's, you know, it's been, it's been nicely successful. Who the hell knows if it's going to happen this year, if there's going to be any restaurants to review in it, but, uh, well, it's just the, the food at her takeout 99 now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've been taking pictures every time I pick up food. Cause that may be all I get for photos in it this year. Are you doing a lot of takeout? I mean, uh, or is it mostly you're cooking in? I'm cooking a lot. Um, but I'm, you know, strategically trying to do interesting stuff, not just run to Wendy's and pick up burgers for everybody. Um, you know, like we just, I'm blanking on what I, what I just ordered. To, oh, the, the Spanish place. Um, yeah, I saw that, the tapas. Yeah, Little Madrid Tapas Cafe, which I completely forgotten existed once the whole lockdown business started. Um, and then we, were, my son and I, were just talking about, you know, Spanish toast, pa tomaquet, and I remembered that that place existed. And I thought, oh God, he probably already went out of business. You know, he came and went with, with nobody even knew he was there practically. Uh, so I emailed him, and sure enough, he's cooking away in his little kitchen. And so I got this Spanish feast on the weekend. He makes paella and everything on the weekend. And so, you know, a new restaurant. And I got the food from it. And all all those things I used to do all the time. Uh, got to do that. So, um, you know, I'm trying to do interesting things like that. I'm probably going to go grab uh, sandwiches from Ethan at Hermosa sometime this week. Um you know, I'm trying to go to the places that are off, you know, away from the the more popular neighborhoods. I figure they probably could use the help. The guy at Rica Arepa was like trying to push a uh, like a frequent buyer card on me that would get me a discount. I'm like, dude, I don't want your discount. I just want to give you money right now. So, yeah, I mean that. I mean, when you ask about my intent for the newsletter, I think that's another one, which is like, listen, I, I mean, I'm not. Uh, should I barbecue King? I'm not Titus. Um, I absolutely have gone to those places. I went to those places, uh, when I was a young writer, I still go to those places now. Um, but I'm certainly not as fastidious as he is about it. Um, so you know what, I'll defer that to him. He does an incredible job. <clears throat> the flip side though, is that there are some of those places that people aren't going to talk about, or even places outside of what Titus would look at, um, you know, like one of the first things I wrote was about my favorite uh, takeout uh, Chinese joint on the corner that no one's ever going to write right. about. Right. Um, you know, or you know what? I did a profile of Derek Tonga, Pauly G's Pizza. I don't know that anybody was going to do a profile of Pauly G's Pizza as good as it is. Um, I don't think that, um, you know, I wrote about uh, Patrick Bertoletti and Taco in a Bag, which, you know, again, drunk stoner food, but it's good drunk stoner food. Um, and 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 so... I do want to highlight those places that nobody's going to talk about in depth in depth because there is a lot of depth there. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. Uh, but of course, I, while I've been going to those places, also, I can't 
I keep dreaming of Hermosa. I got to get there again. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm with you. Uh, maybe we can socially distance six feet away as we order, <laughs> order together this week. But, um, I have of course gone to the Michelin thing and, or, you know, as Kenny Z says, we're not allowed to call it that anymore. Um, the, the, uh, the elite, uh, restaurants, as you said, the yeah. terrorists when using that phrase, but, um, I know people will be like, Oh, you know what? Alinea doesn't need it and whatever, but you know what? Phil Foss needs it. Even though he's Michelin two star, he lives above the restaurant. He is like sort of that idealistic single owner operator, um, irrespective of the fact that he is at a high level in terms of his cooking. I love Grant Atkins, but Grant Atkins is not the guy that's on the curb handing you your food. Phil Foss is in his booberry shirt handing you the food <laughs> on the curb. Um, and it's he's at a very small scale with a very small staff. Um, so in some ways, I'm achieving, you know, not only going out for that level of food, but also supporting still the kind of business that needs to be supported during this time. Um, but the flip side is, you know, when I'm going to Alinea and I'm going to Foss, what I'm finding, it, which I didn't expect, because you're like, oh, well, it's Coca Van, it's Booyah Base. These are standards. Like, you know, I could probably get those from like the French Bistro or whatever if somebody's doing takeout. Like, I don't know if uh, Jean Claude Polavie's place, the uh, Le Bouchon, and those guys are doing that, but I, met, I should probably look into it. So now They're I'm doing just doing it. Just like a couple of days on the weekend, and you have to order at a particular time and stuff like that. I haven't quite tackled it yet, but they, they're doing it a little. Yeah. Yeah. So I should do it. But, um, what I'm finding though, is, you know, is that the quality of even what they're able to put in these like environmental, uh, friendly takeout containers with their little like instructions of like microwave this for 30 seconds, <clears throat> which, Oh, by the way, I mean, what in what world was I going to get an Alinea meal that said microwave something for 30 seconds? <laughs> yeah. It's sort of mind blowing. Um, but also, you know, the idea that they could make this thing, you pick it up, you bring it home, you follow the instructions of like build this or uh, bake this at 275 for 30 minutes. And you literally get a pitch perfect uh, beef Wellington that like, even if I was like the worst cook in America, it somehow works. And when you're, you know, and when you start eating it, it does truly feel just like if you close your eyes, like you're in a restaurant again. Like, and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and while it wasn't necessarily Michelin three star, it was a cut above. It was the best mashed potatoes you're going to get anywhere at this point. You know, it was one of the best beef Wellingtons you're going to get. Like, and, and then if I go to Foss, if I look at what I had, you know, the Booyah base was really good Booyah base, but he did this thing where uh, basically it's a potato leek soup. And then in the middle, you put in like these crunchy matchstick uh, potato, fried potatoes, and like a little bit of a soft mash, uh, potato leek mash. And then you dollop on top vanilla ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's it's hot. It's cold. It's three or four different potato textures. It, it's 100% the food that you would get if you were in the L ideas, uh, uh, dining room. And it feels like, you know, by it's some miraculous thing that you're getting this three-star experience in your own house. And I don't mean it again as like, Oh, I, I, everybody needs to drive a Ferrari or they're losers. I mean it in terms <laughs> of like, it's actually relatively affordable for most people right now. 
notwithstanding, obviously, if you don't have a job or you're struggling to eat and you were doing that before this, but it's, it's, it's relatively uh, accessible and it, 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 it's transformative, not only in making you feel uh, like this pandemic is at bay a little bit, or the wolf is at the door as MFK Fisher would say. Um, But it also like it, 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 I, it's, I know this sounds weird, and I know that if people haven't experienced it, I know that if people are struggling, it sounds terrible. But I think you know what I mean, which is to say that like when somebody does something at the highest quality of their craft and you have the ability to experience you, experience it, it really truly enriches your life. It, it makes you think about how you can do things better in your own life, whether that's like even for me, it's like, okay, you know what? You've been kind of coasting along writing reviews for a couple of years. Why don't you see if you can actually tell a story again? Um, and so it's inspirational for me personally on that level. Um, but just, you know, like maybe I'll homeschool my kids a little bit better today. Um, and maybe that doesn't do that for everybody, but it is what it does for me. No, I think you're right. I mean, I, there's obviously if you have to make sacrifices, if t- things are really strained for you, that's a different matter. And we have to be sensitive to that. But if you're not strained by it, as I'm not particularly at the moment, you're doing a good thing by supporting these people and also experiencing their art and their craft. I mean, why wouldn't you want to do that? And whatever it is, I mean, it could be music, sports, food, whatever. But, you know, as I always say, you, you put up with a lot to live in Chicago, you better appreciate what's good about it on some level. The quality of takeout, even, you know, whatever it is, um, it, whether it is that egg roll from Lee's or whatever, um, you know, it's been it's it's fantastic. People are still doing their jobs and, um, you know, in some ways, maybe doing it even better than they were before. Um, and that's the other thing, even if you're at like a Michelin three star level, you know what the the people who um, are actually impacted are the line cooks who are making like whatever it is, you know minimum wage or a little bit above minimum wage. Um, you know, I know some of them get paid a little bit better, but a lot of them don't have health care. Um, they're the folks who, you know, if they're out of this, they can't pay their rent and they can't do these things. So as much as, you know, you want to, not you, but like that, if people want to malign a linear or whatever, well, you know what, right now there's 20 cooks who are still working. Um, and that, and that's a pretty beautiful thing. You know what? Like, so the other thing that I've been thinking about with this whole thing is that, um, I am absolutely cooking a lot as well. Um, and what I think about too, is that's an absolute luxury and it's an absolute, um, thing, uh, a beautiful thing that like, I'm lucky enough that I've taught myself to cook. You know, it's like one of the things I've always said is sort of like, um, most of us, if we're lucky, um, you know, you're going to eat three times a day. Um, if you're doing the fun things in life that are really interesting to you, um, you're probably hopefully going to be having sex a lot, um, whatever, you know? So you might as well get really good at these things because why would you do (laughs) those things at any level of mediocrity? Right. And so that has served me well. Right. Which is to say that, um, you know, I can cook and it's not a big deal to me and it's actually fairly easy to do. And it's so rewarding and it's so enriching, but I also, as I'm cooking now and where I have a rhythm, even within the context of my own kitchen, you know, I know where everything is and it's, it's really easy for me to do. I remember 15, 20 years ago, like deciding that I wanted to learn how to cook and remembering how ridiculously hard it 
is. Like everybody sells the myth of like the 30 minute meals or whatever. And, you know, nothing against Rachel Ray. I think she's open to cooking in America uh, as much as anybody, um, you know, and, and, but the flip side is like, it is not, it is not easy. It's easy to do certain things. Um, but it does take like the 10,000 hours and it does take the iterative steps. And once you get it, 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 it's a great gift. So, you know, it's like, as people are like learning to do this now, like hopefully people aren't like getting super frustrated and saying, Oh, I can't do this. And it's dropping it. Uh, you know, I guess my message would be like, stick with it because, you know, we may not have a pandemic next year, but maybe there's something else that locks you in the house or worst case scenario, you know, you're able to reward your family and have a communal experience at the dining table over something you've created. And, um, you know, so I guess my point is it's it's a blessing, but it's also a skill that, you know what, if you're looking for something to do, now's the time to do it because this this experience shows you how, how valuable of a skill it is. Yeah, no, and it, it's it's also just how we're we're getting through this. If you're, I mean, I don't know if your kids cook with you at all, but I mean, I'm I'm doing a little bit of that with each of them. I mean, never both at the same time because they have different interests uh, in what they want to do. Um, but like the younger one suddenly discovered after years of my making them that Rubens are actually good. And now he just wants to make Rubens all the time. It's like, no, really, a midnight snack of a Reuben that's that leads to sorrow. Uh, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, we're just like, yeah, sweet sorrow. We're, we're practicing these things. We're doing it together. Um, you know, otherwise, you're just going to watch TV the whole time. So and, and be on the computer. And yeah. I sure wouldn't want to be on the I, computer all day. No, not me. No, sir. Yeah, that's never happened in this house. Uh, no, that's the interesting thing. It's like my nine-year-old scrambles his own eggs now. And uh, when he does it, the look of delight on his face is equivalent to him, like, beating an episode of – or beating a, a – uh, getting a victory royale in, like, Fortnite. So, I mean, <laughs> it, it you know, it's like the same level of satisfaction. So I'm kind of gratified by that at this point. Uh, you know, the 13-year-old is just, like, make me something. So, you know, we're still working on that. We didn't talk about it, but, like, obviously the uh, – there's the Grubhub shit, like the delivery service shit. That's interesting. Um, it seems like all of a sudden there's like this huge, like rising tide of animosity. And based on some of the stuff I've seen and talked to people about, you know, they're pretty fucking egregious. But um, it'll be interesting to see if they die out of this or like people really do reject um, those delivery services or not. Well, you know, I, I don't think that many people will really clue into it. So sadly, they'll keep using them. But I mean, like seeing them show up with Mayor Lightfoot and then reading what the actual terms of that deal are and how they're not giving anything away. It just, you know, it made me not want to use them. And right now, I mean, what do I have to do but drive down to Duck Inn or Virtue and pick up my damn food, my damn self? So Scott Weiner said that. So, you know, he's on the Illinois Restaurant Association board with all those guys. And so Maloney came to them and said, I want to do this thing they started asking about the details and like digging into it and they started to realize like what the deal was and that it wasn't really this thing. And Maloney kept pushing uh, the mayor to just do this press conference. And he's like, basically what happened is Maloney and lettuce basically um, pushed Lightfoot ahead of their endorsement for the Illinois restaurant association as they were investigating it. And she just went and did it. And, you know, then, yeah, now it turns out like the reason 
they're investigating is because there were all these like nefarious terms and things. And, you know, Scott went so far as to say that he believes Maloney just straight face lied to the mayor. Um, but uh, the, um, you know, just the predatory practices, you know, like I, I actually, what did, what did I look, search for the other day? Oh, John's Pizzeria, right? Because I like my little neighborhood, whatever, blah, blah, blah. The first Google result is is Grubhub. It's not John's Pizzeria. Like, it's just, it's fucked up. Like, you're redirecting the traffic to your own site, you know, like, on the, I get it. If you want to take pizza delivery, if you want to take whatever, but you're taking John's Pizzeria, which is like this 50-year-old business that's family-owned, the owner just died. Like, really? Whatever, I guess. It's, it's capitalism. It's America, but... Like it, well, it's they're the, just everything they're doing. It's the big companies that are taking advantage of their having more lawyers to abuse IP law to me. And it, to me, it's, it reduces the value of Google. Google makes a little money off all these ads. Maybe they make what seems to them a lot of money off all these ads, but it just means I look more closely at Google to see where that, where that result is actually going to go. Cause there's more trash at the top of results in Google. It's no longer the most efficient way to find things. Um, it's so, you know, yeah, screw that. Yeah. They're violating their charter of doing no evil. Right. You know, that's been a long time now. So yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, Google Glasses are very evil. So what do you think this all looks like afterwards? What What's the food scene like? I mean, I think the most interesting thing is that, I mean, one of the things we know, like the stories that have been told prior to this, is how obscenely difficult it is to find uh, high-quality, really good hospitality workers. There's so much competition in Chicago. Um, we knew that. You know, there were like 10 places opening for every one or two that closed. Um, so I think two things. One, you know, just as with the stock market, there is a correction, right? Um, the folks who probably had no business opening restaurants or who didn't have the cash flow, they're not going to come out of this, which means that the restaurant market is going to contract a little bit. Um, we are going to lose some good places along the way, which is really unfortunate. Um, you know, one of the things I thought actually is it reminds me a lot of what we do in the sense of we, you know, it used to be that you could make a, a, a career in media. Um, you could make a decent living. Um, and then we saw that drop off. Right. And then what happened was, you know, people like you and me would like start writing when we were younger, um, you know, or in the case of, you know, being lucky enough to have supporting jobs where it doesn't need to be the primary source of income, we could accept less money. Um, but at some point we said, you know what, this less money, it doesn't even make sense. Let me just do it on my own. Um, and what happened was instead of being replaced by people who are good at their craft, we're replaced by people who are fresh out of school, um, who are in the early twenties, who haven't eaten around, who are still working on their craft. And I mean, no disrespect to that because I think that there are an incredible crop of 20 year olds writing and reporting in our city right now about food and other things. And they certainly are, you know, as Whitney Houston says, the future. Um, but, but um, the flip side of that is it takes time for those people to get good and it takes time for them to develop their craft. And what we know is that when those, when those uh, 20 year olds become 30 year olds and that they have responsibility and they have mortgages and they have children, they're not going to be able to sustain their careers as media people and the cycle is going to continue over. And so then you have 
a craft where nobody's really good at the craft. And what does that mean for our society? And I think the same thing starts to happen with restaurants, which is to say that you had a lot of people right now who are very good at their craft, who've been working on it for years, and they doubled down and they opened their own restaurants and they opened with very meager cash flow um, and they were already on the brink. And then what happens when we get out of this and they can't afford to have floated these two or three months and they have to close and they're in tremendous debt and they're not able to open a restaurant for a long time or maybe even ever again. So we lose those voices, which we, you know, which is a huge loss to us because now you're, you're, you're losing the craftspeople and they're replaced with people who, you know what, they happen to have money, but they don't know anything about the restaurant industry. And so we get a little bit more of a saturation again with things that aren't very good or again, not very differentiated. Um, and then the second thing I think about too is like, this is the good news for the people who treated their people right, for the people who managed their cash flow, for the people who've shown that not only are they good at their craft, but they're good at the craft of business. It's going to be a little bit of a buyer's market for that high quality individual in the hospitality industry. And so some of these teams or some of these places, it's it's sort of like you hear the stories about like Southwest during the uh, 9-11 crisis where Southwest like lost a little bit of money in that one quarter. But that's the only time they've lost money in like 30 years or something like that in a quarter, because what they understood fundamentally was we're going to pick up all these hubs. We're going to double down on the business. We know what we're doing. And, and the same thing goes with these hospitality groups is they're going to pick up some of these great people that other people had, um, and they're going to come back stronger and better than before, which I think, so there's both a loss, but there's also kind of a big gain there. My wife gave me like a mask and gloves and I wear it, keep them in my pocket, but I literally, I don't know, I just... I'm like, I'm keeping six feet away. Like I'm expecting nobody's going to projectile on me. Like there, I, if, if I genuinely thought it was the threat that it could be, or that some people think it is, um, yeah, sure. Um, especially if I felt like I was spreading it or whatever. Um, but the flip side of it is I do kind of want to cling to the idea of being a human being and not being distrustful of others or putting up barriers, physical barriers between me and other people to see my face and things like that if I don't have to. Um, you know, and maybe I'm woefully wrong on this and, you know, I should I should really change that, but I hope that I'm not. And, and, and because that's the other thing I think about this is like when we come out of this, like, uh, you know, are we gonna, is it gonna take like a year or two for us to like, even be trustful to stand within six feet of people that we don't know or, you know, and it's like, you know, you'd hate for that to happen. Right. Do you, um, will but, you want to be at a busy restaurant? Will you want to be at a concert, you know, right after this? I think a lot of people are going to be hesitant about that just because they're being retrained that way. So, yeah. But, you know, the thing we did, the other thing too, uh, so my 13-year-old is, sadly, he's a, uh, descendant of poor Eastern European peasant farmers and he's white, but he loves basketball. <laughs> so, 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 uh, uh, I did, uh, I bought a hoop and put it in the alley. And, uh, so it took me like three days to build. And, uh, um, but now they're like just out back shooting baskets like all the time, which has also been like a nice little, uh, diversion from all of this. So,
Thanks for listening to Food Eater Radio is all dressed up and has no place to go. And thanks to my guest, Michael Nagrant. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Please subscribe to Food Eater Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And consider leaving a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help other people discover it too. Thanks. <laughs>